Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language. So take care of yourself while you're listening. For all practical purposes, he's been accused by Scott of lying, and that means you're out. We're back in the Wellington High Court in 2019, but the jury has the day off. They don't get to hear this bit. And the only way he can get in, having been told, do what you need to do to get in, having the kids in his ear asking if he got the job, all of that stuff I've been through, the only way for him to get in is to say he did. And his answer is, all right, then I did. David Little's defence lawyer is arguing that the Mr Big confession is too unreliable to be considered by the jury. He's telling Justice Jill Mellon that the confession and the whole case should be thrown out because David Little made it up in a desperate attempt to get into Mr Big's gang after Mr Big didn't believe him that it was a drug killing. But she's not sure. And then he tells um, a, a story of extraordinary detail, which is, just as Fran says, is extraordinary if it was made up on the spot. And there are two answers to that. Uh, One, um, it's wrong at almost every juncture at which it can be compared with known evidence. As we saw in the last episode, most of David Little's confession can't be true. But anyway... It's a serious error to equate detail with truth. Because research shows... Provably false confessions often contained rich and compelling detail, including a description of the manner in which crimes were carried out, auditory and sensory details, smells at the crime scene, the victim's response, um, full detailed narratives of, of how these things occurred. The Crown Prosecutor, Michelle Wilkinson-Smith, says, sure, the whole thing was set up so that David Little wanted in. But that doesn't mean he was lying. I don't want to downplay that there was inducement. There was. But I would say that care needs to be taken to what that was an inducement for. It was an inducement for Mr Little to very much want to join this group. To the extent that he would be willing to talk about something to this group that he would not talk about to anyone else. I think it is taking, or my submission is that it goes a step too far to say it is an inducement for a false confession, because in actual fact, Scott makes it very clear that he doesn't want to be lied to. Did the police push David Little into a false confession? Or did they just give him an opportunity to tell the truth? Is it safe for the jury to rely on it? I'm Stephen Price, and this is Mr Little Meets Mr Big, a podcast about whether the police can invent a story to get to the truth about a murder. We've heard why police suspected David Little enough to run a Mr Big sting on him, and how that played out. In the last episode, we found out David Little's confession was full of things that couldn't be true. But then he seemed to confess again after he was told about the sting. What does the law say about Mr Big confessions? In this episode, we look at how the courts decide whether juries should be allowed to take account of evidence like this. One option would have been for him to say, look, I really didn't do it, and I'm really worried the police are still looking at me. Can you make it go away? 
If he's honest and we achieve our objectives, he'll get a handshake pat on the back and welcomed into the organisation, tell him I can arrange for his problem to be resolved. What is so objectionable about the police using their, their full resources to, to detect and, uh, and prosecute crime? As it happens, our top court, the Supreme Court, has thought about Mr Big Stings and cleared up the rules. It did it in a case about a different Mr Big Sting. This one involved a guy called Tawara Wesley Witchman. Let's go back to 2009. Tawara Witchman is 17. His partner's 16. They have newborn twins, a boy and a girl. They were 15 weeks premature. They're difficult babies. The girl, Tegan, doesn't sleep well and cries a lot. Government agencies had helped by giving them housing and some parenting advice, but after five months, Tawara and his partner are basically left to cope on their own. They divvy up the tasks. The mother looks after the twins during the day while Tawara tries to sleep, and they switch at night. But one day, it all gets too much, and the mother rushes out to get her parents back to help. Tawara tries to give Tegan a bottle, but he just can't calm her. She loses consciousness, and Tawara calls an ambulance. In the hospital, the baby is found to have bleeding to the brain, extensive brain damage, and severe retinal haemorrhages. That's bleeding on the back wall of the eye. Later, she suffers serious seizures. Six months after that, she dies. The police interview Tawara about it, and he says she started choking and stopped breathing, so he shook her to wake her up. Police doubt his story. But things are murky, so they don't charge him. Instead, they wait a few years. Then they run a Mr Big Sting on him. Tawara Witchman didn't want to talk to me, but we know a lot about what happened from the court decisions. The Sting's very similar to David Little's one. The door-to-door survey, he's won a prize, he has a new friend, offers of paid jobs, increasingly criminal, meeting the gang... The bywords of trust, honesty and loyalty. The crooked cop. The destruction of evidence to help a member who'd raped a young girl. The promises of wealth and friendship. Like David Little, Tarada Witchman has a big interview with the boss. Will he be allowed in? The boss brings up the police suspicions about his baby. Like David, Tarada initially denies it. He says... It was just a bit of a shake to wake her up, and she didn't wake up, so I put her down. He says he administered CPR to get the breathing going, and he was really proud of that. Mr Big doesn't buy it. He shows Tawara the medical report and says, These doctors do this day in and day out, and they're experts. they got no reason to make stuff up. The doctor says it couldn't have been sort of accidental. It had to be a fairly good hefty shake. Tawara agrees it was a good shake, but it wasn't long, like maybe five seconds, just to try and wake her up. Mr Big says, I don't really care what you've done, but what I care about is just making sure I know everything about the situation so that I can fix it. He insists on 100% honesty, then says he's going to the loo, and so just, you know, just give it some thought in relation to truth and honesty, brother. Then he comes back, and again, Tawara says, the shake was just for five seconds or less, But finally, he admits that he got tired and stressed and the baby just wouldn't stop crying. And he got real frustrated and just kind of lost it and gave her quite a good shake. He said he'd never told anyone before and apologised for lying. 
He admitted the version of events he told police was wrong. This is a terrible story he's telling, but is it reliable? He's pretty young. He started off denying it. Was he telling the truth then? He's got a powerful incentive to confess whether he did it or not. And it's not as if he's leading them to the body or some other evidence that could clear it up one way or the other. That was never going to happen. Without that hard evidence, Tawara Witchman's fate was sealed by his own story. Tawara Witchman's lawyer argued that the jury should never see the confession. And in the High Court, Justice David Collins, the former Solicitor General, was pretty scathing about the Mr Big technique. He said, An ordinary New Zealander, properly informed of all relevant circumstances, would not have expected the police to engage in lies, deception and blatantly misleading conduct of the kind that occurred in this case. Now, not all judges agree with that. One Canadian judge said that a reasonable, well-informed member of the community would, quote, unhesitatingly endorse, end quote, Mr Big Tactics. That feels to me more like a difference between judges than a difference between New Zealand and Canadian society. Anyway, Justice Collins reluctantly found that the law required him to let the jury hear the confession. Tarara Witchman appealed. And in the Court of Appeal, all three judges said this Mr Big Sting was unfair. They said the Mr Big technique was very deceitful and put him under a lot of psychological pressure to confess. That meant the confession might not be reliable. They also said the technique unfairly boxed him in. If he wanted to show a jury that his confession was unreliable because of all this unfair pressure, he'd have to show them that he'd been a willing criminal. And they said it was unfair for police to basically interrogate him again, without any sort of warning, when they knew he would have invoked his rights to silence and to a lawyer, because that's what he did during the initial investigation. In other words, police deliberately circumvented Tawara Witchman's rights. The Court of Appeal threw out the confession. It couldn't be played to a jury. That probably would have meant the end of the case. This time, the Crown appealed. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. That's a pretty big deal, since it only accepts about 1 in 15 leave applications in criminal cases. The appeal was heard in the Supreme Court building over the road from Parliament, with its rounded brown walls and their triangular wood pattern. Going to a Supreme Court hearing feels a bit like being inside a giant pineapple. The Witchman case was heard in 2015. There's a lot of legal debate about the Evidence Act and the case law, but it's striking that at the heart of the argument, you'll find the two stories you can tell about Mr Big. That it's a clever strategy aimed at devious criminals designed to get to the truth. Or that it's a manipulative trick that exploits the vulnerable and incentivizes them to lie. And depending on which story they find convincing, the five Supreme Court judges have the power to effectively outlaw Mr Big operations altogether. You can hear those stories clashing in the crossfire between Crown Counsel Annabel Markham and Chief Justice Sean Elias. Annabel Markham says the Mr Big interview wasn't very pushy. It was conversational. Mr Big told Tara Witchman he could walk away, no grudges. So there was no element of, of compulsion uh, here such that would, would raise concerns about any common law uh, right well, to silence the or privilege. Compulsion, only the compulsion from the whole world that's been created that this man is now living in. That, that's, um, 
And in that context, is it not a relevant consideration that this technique is directed at um, eliciting a confession, the most potent um, form of evidence uh, that's available? Because he can be convicted simply on, on the um, admission. The Crown didn't accept that the sting was designed to elicit a confession from Tawara Witchman. It was to elicit the truth. That's why there was all that emphasis on trust and honesty. To falsely confess would, would be to, to fly in the face of, of those very values that the organisation has um, emphasised to, to the point of um, overemphasis. Mr Big wasn't pushing for a particular answer. So it was hardly a, a pointed interrogation where he was called a liar. Um, it was a very gentle interview, um, and but he the, wanted the, to be in. He wanted to be accepted, and yes. um, he was being probed as to whether, um, and he had to give up something. He had to give of something important uh, to indicate trust. That's the technique that's being adopted, isn't it? Well, I, I'm not sure I would accept that. It's, it's the, the baggage, the police suspicion that's presented as a potential obstacle. We don't want the police heat on you in this organisation. We've got a corrupt officer to sort it out and fix it. It's not, tell me your secrets and then you can be part of an organisation. Um, well, it's pretty close to that, really. We've got to trust you. Well, there's, there's certainly a, a very strong element of trust and I, I would accept that, but... but that is, in my submission, a, a powerful indicator of, of reliability. Well, well, not if you want to be in and you think the only way you're going to be admitted to this gang is uh, if you acknowledge um, something that they've obviously got some suspicions about mm. and are putting to you. With respect, it wasn't put to him in, in those terms. Besides, says the Crown, if there was some unfairness, who says the police should play fair when they're chasing criminals? What is so objectionable about the police using their, their full resources to, to detect and, uh, and prosecute crime? Uh, it, it is, in my submission, uh, an error of principle to, to, seek, to seek or to strive to obtain some sort of uh, level playing field in, in the investigation stage. But the Chief Justice wondered... Is it really right for the police to exploit people's vulnerabilities? This technique would, however, only be used against uh, those who are vulnerable, wouldn't it? Well, in, um, a, sense, well, in a sense, it would only work <laughs> in relation to, I mean. to those that are vulnerable that's to what it. I mean. um, but vulnerable to the technique working is, is distinct in my submission from having special characteristics of vulnerability that are exploited, such as... Um, oh, or that what, what about wanting to belong? That was Chief Justice Sean Elias challenging the Crown. And you won't be surprised to hear that she voted to throw out the Mr Big evidence. So did Justice Susan Glazebrook. They agreed with the Court of Appeal that the sting was unfair. They said it exploited Tawara Witchman's vulnerabilities. He was immature, dependent on the gang, and really wanted the perks of membership. They said police tried to circumvent the rules about police questioning, which should apply to undercover officers anyway. They disagreed that Tawara Witchman was free to assert his innocence. 
They said the pressure from the sting in the interview meant he really had no choice but to tell Mr Big what Mr Big wanted to hear. They said this might have produced a false confession, and the Chief Justice would have thrown out the confession as unreliable as well as unfair. Both judges realised this might well mean the end of the Mr Big technique. But the three other judges disagreed with pretty much all of those conclusions. They said the sting didn't involve threats of violence or exploitation of Tawara's vulnerabilities. The police weren't overbearing or coercive, and Mr Big's questions left Tawara Witchman free to assert his innocence. They said the police didn't have to provide warnings or follow usual interrogation methods when they were undercover, and a Mr Big sting didn't unfairly circumvent those rules. It wasn't the police's job to play fair. So in the end, the court split 3-2. For those keeping score, this meant that of the eight appeal judges who considered this case, five of them would have ruled the confession out. But the majority of the Supreme Court were the ones that mattered, and they said the confession could go to the jury. Law is a story too, and this is never clearer than when judges disagree. Judges sometimes disagree about facts, But you might be surprised that the law is also unclear. There are gaps, vague bits, inconsistencies. It's malleable. It's human. Different judges approach the task in different ways. Some see the law as an ancient river of principles and rules that they need only dip their hands into and serve up whatever they find. Others see it more like a lump of potter's clay to be moulded according to the needs of society. So judges tell themselves different stories about the law and their jobs in it. In the US, judges call their decisions opinions. I think they're onto something there. It seems more honest about the way judges' rulings inevitably reflect their own values about how judging is to be done and what things truly matter. And that can affect how they see the facts, who they regard as the bad guys, what resolutions seem fair, and how they should read statutes in other cases. In the Witchman case... You can read the different judges' opinions as a clash between two different judicial stories. One saying the law shouldn't unduly hamper police catching bad guys, and the other saying the law needs to protect ordinary people against excessive use of government power. Anyway, after that, Tawara Witchman pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Did that mean he did it? Or did he just see the writing on the wall? When he handed down Tawara Witchman's sentence, Justice Simon France said the law has to punish people who hurt their children. But he called the case tragic. This is not at all one of the worst cases. It was a case of loving parents, probably out of their depth, doing their best. And a mistake being made born not of anger, but of frustration. There is here none of the sustained abuse one sees in some other cases. The violence has consisted of shaking. When one then turns to face the other facts, it would be wrong not to recognise the very difficult situation these young parents were in. They were only teenagers, the mother 16, trying to bring up twin babies born 15 weeks premature, one of whom was not an easy baby. It must have been very hard. He pointed out the parents had now lost custody of the other twin and his younger sister. Tawara had lost his business that he took over from his father. Whatever you think about Mr Big Stings, or about this result, there's got to be a question about whether this is the right guy to target. Justice Susan Glazebrook and the Supreme Court doubted it was appropriate to run a Mr Big Sting on him. I do too.
So where does that leave the law? Well, it means it's very hard to argue against Mr Big confessions. You can't say they're inherently unfair because the majority of the Supreme Court said they weren't. And the Supreme Court says Mr Big targets aren't being denied their right to silence or to a lawyer because they're not being held in custody. And it's not entrapment because they're not being encouraged to commit a crime, only confess to one. Roughly speaking, that's also the law in Australia and Canada. The High Court in Australia said Mr Big's things were allowable, but for different reasons. In 2014, the Canadian Supreme Court said Mr Big's things were dangerous, and the judges created what looked like strict new rules before a court could hear evidence about them. But Dr Adelina Iftene, assistant professor at Dalhousie University, says that the Supreme Court decision hasn't made any difference. So, basically, the number of cases where the confession have been thrown out after 2014 was not higher than, than before. Um, if anything, was perhaps lower. Her take is that even for judges... It's very difficult to put your bias aside when you hear those confessions. So that means defence lawyers who want to challenge Mr Big's things usually have to hang their hat on arguments about reliability. Under the Evidence Act, if there's doubt about the reliability of someone's statement, including a confession... The prosecution has to convince a judge that, and here are the exact words, the circumstances in which the statement was made were not likely to affect its reliability. And hang on, in a Mr Big case, where all that money and cars and friendships are being dangled, there'll always be some doubt about reliability. So in every Mr Big case, the prosecution has to show that those inducements aren't likely to have made the confession unreliable. When the confession leads to the discovery of a body, that's not going to be a very hard task. But what about where the confession's all over the shop? Where some bits line up with the evidence and others can't possibly have happened? Where the target leads them to a burial site and the body isn't there? Where he then confesses to some prison guards after he knows about the sting? Can the Crown show that when you look at David Little's vulnerabilities and the enticements in the sting and all the evidence consistent with David Little's confession to Mr Big and all the evidence that's not... Can they show his confession is likely to be reliable? That's what the lawyers are arguing about now. You're probably wondering why it's been left this late. Shouldn't David Little's lawyers have argued this thing was inadmissible, you know, before the trial? Well, they did. And the courts ruled that David Little's Mr Big confession wasn't unreliable, which is why the jury could listen to it. But now the defence wants a second bite at that. They say things have changed now. We've seen all the evidence. We know a lot more about the circumstances of the confession. So the judge has a much better grasp on why the confession was unreliable than the earlier judges did. So, back to the argument in the Wellington High Court before Justice Mallon and David Little's trial. Christopher Stevenson is arguing the Mr Big sting was much more coercive than any of the judges thought. Whilst it was acknowledged there were some inducements, one, one couldn't possibly, and the courts haven't been able to, uh, really appreciate the insidious nature of the inducements. He says we now have a much better window on David Little's vulnerability. David Little was not a sophisticated person, did not have a wide group of friends, did have serious addiction issues in terms of alcohol and tobacco. During that fishing trip prize at the beginning of the sting, David drained 20 beers. On top of that, his childhood was traumatic and unstable, and his health was rocky. He was addicted to tramadol, an opioid pain medication. And by listening to police interceptions of family phone calls, we can hear the family's financial problems. 
Your Honour will recall the um, telephone calls and I think the discussion on more than one occasion about running out of wood for heating. Mm -hmm. Kids are home sick, she has to keep the fire going. And the effect on the family of the Mr Big inducements. Kids are in the background um, asking if, if Dad got the job. In those earlier rulings saying the confession wasn't unreliable, the judges had said there was no reason for David Little to think he had to fess up to Mr Big in order to be a member. Quite the opposite. The gang had told him repeatedly that honesty was what mattered. Why would he think a confession was any more acceptable than a denial? So his confession didn't seem unreliable. But Christopher Stevenson says those judges didn't have the full picture. What they, those courts didn't have before them um, was the um, preparatory material of Scott. The preparatory material? This is new. It turns out that Scott had made notes about how the Mr Big interview would go. There was a strategy to get Mr Little to confess and a strategy to deal with him should he say uh, he wasn't involved. Christopher Stevenson starts reading from Scott's notes. If he's honest and we achieve our objectives, he'll get a handshake pat on the back and welcomed into the organisation, tell him I can arrange for his problem to be resolved. If he's honest? So for Scott, Mr Big, for the police, the only honest answer is a confession. The objective is a confession. In those notes, Scott describes David Little as the offender. Christopher Stevenson quotes Professor Timothy Moore, who we heard from in an earlier episode. And he says, uh, one shouldn't transpose the concept of truth in a Mr Big operation into a legal setting as if it has the same meaning. Because the truth is what Mr Big thinks is the truth. So what was Scott going to do if David Little maintained his denial? Here are his preparation notes again. If he sticks to his police version... I'll tell him I'm not satisfied he's being completely honest. If David Little says he didn't do it, it's because he's not being honest. And Scott's going to say so. Well, the Mr Big interview goes right according to Scott's script. When David Little denies killing Brett, Scott says he's got no reason to doubt what Lee, his crooked cop, is telling him. Trusts him a thousand percent. The message is clear. I believe him. I don't believe you. You failed honesty. You're failing. If the truth isn't what Mr Big wants to hear, then David Little has to come up with a story that is. So that's the defence argument. David Little was vulnerable, a drinker, financially strapped, socially isolated, awkward. Police enticed him into confessing with promises of money and cars and friendship. The Mr Big interview was all about getting him to confess. Scott wouldn't accept any other answer. David told him the truth at first then had to make up a story to get in. What did he have to lose? He told them the story the police had given him when they accused him of the murder. But his telling of it was full of impossibilities. There was no body, no handsaw. The driving and cutting and burning and burying couldn't have happened in the way he described it. And where was the blood and the DNA at the campsite and on David's clothes and car? And what about that CCTV picture of what looked like chilli bins in the back of his car, where there was supposed to be a body? It's just not reliable. And we can't just trust a jury to tell the difference, because people are mesmerised by confessions, and we just can't believe that an innocent person would confess, even when we know why they might. Still, Justice Mellon is obviously troubled by the confession to the prison guards. Well, I mean, it would have been... 
better for him, I would have thought, if he had said no. So it's been a terrible set-up and I can't believe what the police have done to me and I've admitted to something I didn't do. This strikes me as the Crown's best argument, that the guts of David Little's confession might be reliable after all. I mean, why didn't he say that? Maybe, as we heard in the last episode, what he told the guards was no more than, I've been waiting for this day to come. Or maybe, the defence suggests, it was just bravado. As a 49-year-old, slightly built man who's never been in custody before and having been charged with murder and is being put into prison, upon being asked by a prison guard, got the right man, um, he might have puffed up and said, yep, yep, no, you know, that's me, I'm the murderer, and um, that might give me some cred as I go into custody. Was that really all that convincing? Not to Michelle Wilkinson-Smith. It would be open for a jury to conclude that he just thought the game was up. I've I've been caught, I've been admitting it, it's up. It's just hard to believe David is lying again, and for yet another different reason. He lies to Mr Big about murdering Brett to get into the gang. He lies to Detective Sergeant Gleeson about killing Brett in self-defence because he's being sarcastic. He lies to the prison guards that police have got the right man because... bravado. Does that really all stack up? And then the Crown says, look at all the other evidence that's consistent with David Little's confession, showing that Brett was angry with him about the building. He had clearly, Mr Hall, become very upset with Mr Little, believing Mr Little was ripping him off. David's odd driving in the early hours of the Sunday morning. There's the developing story about his movements um, and the fact that he's unable during the interview to explain the two-hour time gap between the CCTV sighting in Turakina at 5.30am and the 7.30am CCTV sighting in Bulls. David's claim that he saw Brett later that Sunday with his quad bike, when the quad bike was already up the hill. He's describing seeing it, and from that, um, supporting that Mr Hall was going hunting. The search that couldn't find Brett. There was no sign, and there was a huge search operation. The campsite that hadn't changed in between Saturday, when Brett's son Damien visited, and Wednesday, when the police arrived. The position within the campsite is that it doesn't look as though anything's changed. And so if he's lived there for three or four days, that would seem quite incredible. If he hadn't lived there because he was already dead, then David must have lied about seeing him on the Sunday. Why else lie about seeing a dead man? The Crown says there are three strands to its case. There's all this evidence, and more as we've seen, pointing to David Little, even without the Mr Big confession. Then there's what David said to Detective Sergeant Gleeson after he was arrested that it was self-defence, and to the prison guards the next day, that the police had got the right man. The third strand is the Mr Big confession. But even if there are some problems with that confession when you look at it by itself, the other two strands show that it is fundamentally reliable. And if the Mr Big operation put pressure on David Little, it was to tell the truth. And Mr Big didn't have to lean on David very hard at the big interview. Now, if the interview had been really coercive and Scott had said, I think you're lying about this, I think you did kill him, that argument might have more weight. But it's, very, it's a very mild challenge that leads to him saying, OK, I did it. I mean, one option would have been for him to say, look, I really didn't do it and I'm really worried the police are still looking at me. Can you make it go away? The judge was interested in Scott's preparatory materials. Wasn't it a case of they weren't going to take no for an answer? Honesty required is what Scott believes is honest. That's true. 
And according to the planning notes, Scott believes honesty is um, confessing. Is well, the planning notes, um, of course, um, Mr Little's not privy to those planning notes. So they're not, the planning notes are not operating on Mr Little. She's saying Scott's preparatory notes are like stage directions that the audience doesn't see. We can hear and see how the sting operates on David, and that's what matters. This feels like a good point, but I don't know. It's kind of alarming to see Scott's notes calling David Little the offender and planning to press on until David gives him honesty in the form of a confession. It gives us a window on the story in Scott's head, and it does look like police tunnel vision. Scott's certainty that David is guilty is driving Scott's thinking and setting the mood of the interview. Mightn't David be picking up on that? The Crown also talks about the defence suggestion that David Little is vulnerable. Michelle Wilkinson-Smith says, when we watch and listen to David during the sting, we don't see a vulnerable, isolated patsy. He talks about seeing a cousin that he's happy to see in Wellington. He talks about um, being involved in building projects on the weekends. He talks about his children's sport. The socially isolated argument, um, I think, is not as strong having heard... um, having heard some of those scenarios, because he, he talks about a relatively full life. He has certainly the support of his family, um, and he seems to be quite involved in his community. And um, He also talks about his mates. He had, oh, I've got a mate here or a mate there. And, by the way, the gang members told David not to drink on the job, so they didn't exploit his drinking problem. So he's not vulnerable, he wasn't exploited, and he wasn't really pressured. And if he was, it was to tell the truth. Anyway, there's lots of evidence consistent with his confession. Besides, the Court of Appeal has already heard all this and still considered the confession wasn't unreliable. Mr Stevenson raised the exact same issues in terms of vulnerability um, and pressure um, and the big payday. These matters that he now says, well, no other court's known about this, the Court of Appeal did in this case. In other words, nothing's really changed. The Court of Appeal already ruled, before the trial, that the sting was reliable enough for the jury to see it. Nothing really new came out during the trial that would justify Justice Mellon deciding now that the confession was unreliable. So what will the judge do? I think the Crown was right that what came out in trial wasn't that much different to what the earlier judges were told. Though at the trial you could feel in your bones what David Little was going through rather than read it on paper but the facts were about the same. And those earlier judges didn't think David Little would have felt the need to lie to Scott. They didn't think he was vulnerable. They pointed to all the evidence that was consistent with his confession. They said some of his descriptive detail, like the piece of paper that David said fluttered out of Brett's pocket when he moved the body, were unlikely to be made up. And David's admissions to Detective Sergeant Gleeson and the prison guards after he knew about the sting Those suggested it was something inside David that was prompting him to confess, not the outside pressures of the Mr Big Sting. Yes, they said, there were some things that couldn't have happened the way he said, but these things were, and they used this word, neutral. That's because some of the other things he said to Scott were clearly true. In other words, it was a wash, and not enough to show a real risk that David Little's Mr Big confession was unreliable. I can still remember reading that part of the Court of Appeal's decision, which came out back in 2017, and thinking, what the heck? I like to scribble notes over the judgments as I read them, kind of like a conversation with the judges, 
a satisfying one because I always get the last word. And by this part I've written, this seems very wrong. I mean, I think you can argue about how vulnerable David Little was and what effect the sting might have had on him. But you can't say all those inaccuracies are a wash. The body wasn't there. The murder weapon wasn't there. The trip he described was impossible. He didn't take his cell phone. He didn't avoid the CCTV cameras. The fire at the campsite couldn't have lasted three days or even one day. The fire at the beach couldn't have destroyed the buried remains. The holes couldn't have been that big. Dismembering the body looks doubtful. Hardly any of it was true. The bits that we know are true are entirely unsurprising, since David knew all about Brett's disappearance and the police case against him. I can't see how that can be a neutral factor. If the Crown has to prove that the confession is likely to be reliable, I just can't see how they can do it. And one other thing, that stuff about the fluttering paper. Yes, it has the ring of truth. But that really does fly in the face of the social science evidence that false confessions can be detailed and compelling. It seems to me that the piece of paper that fell from Brett's body might just as easily have been an invention by David when Scott asked him what else he burned on the fire. Yes, he told a dramatic story about the moment he shot Brett. But the motive he described, Brett wanting to get him back into the drug world, had nothing to do with a building dispute, which is what the Crown mostly relied on during the trial. I think the judges may have been overlooking one thing that seems clear whatever else you think about this case. David Little is a pretty good storyteller. What did Justice Mellon do? She didn't throw out the Mr Big confession. She said it was reliable enough. She didn't quite agree with the earlier judges, though. She said she had a fuller appreciation of how the sting had played out. She said David Little was highly susceptible to the Mr Big inducements, which deliberately exploited his personality and situation. She could see the effect on him and his family, and it did increase the risk of a false confession. But she said that the evidence around the accuracy of the Mr Big confession hadn't changed, and it seems she didn't feel she could second-guess the Court of Appeal's analysis. That seems to be accepting that all David's fictions were a neutral factor. She pointed to the most powerful evidence supporting the reliability of David's confession, his admissions to Detective Sergeant Gleeson and the prison guards. Surely she and the other judges were right that this buttresses the reliability of the confession. But is that enough to call it reliable? Anyway, it was up to the jury now. They weren't allowed to hear the argument about reliability that we'd just listened to. But it was now their job to decide whether they thought the confession was reliable. It's a bit confusing, but you can think of it this way. The judge's job is to weed out evidence that's too unreliable to even be considered by the jury. But for any evidence that's not weeded out, the jury get to make up their own mind about it, together with all the other evidence. Still, let's remember the warnings from the experts who study this stuff. False confessions are powerful. They sound real. They feel like great evidence. They're hard to overlook. jury didn't get to hear from the experts. In the next episode, we'll find out whether they'll perhaps be one of the only juries in the world to acquit someone who confessed to Mr Big. Mr Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. 
Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to the sound engineers, Blair Stagpool, Phil Benj, Mark Chesterman, Rangi Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansel and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. The actors were Jack Sergeant Shadbolt and Alex Grigg. Duncan Smith was the director. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.